Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cisan with the newest episode of Third Fridays. Now, we usually do this thing because it's the one day of the month where nobody has hearings in the entire state, but it's a little different today. Uh, there are hearings on Third Friday in June. I'm still going to work for you, though. You're still going to get a bonus podcast from me. Uh, and today I have Declan Gorley from uh, our office. Now, you may remember Declan because he was my guest on the premiere episode of this podcast, and we talked about opioids. Now, still to this day, that is the most downloaded episode of the podcast, so I don't know if it's about opioids, which I could talk about for days, or just people like Declan over everybody else. Declan, welcome back. What, do you think it's about you? Thanks for having me back, Christian. Uh, well, we'll see whether this will be the most downloaded or the second most downloaded episode. Okay. All right. All right. He's, he's getting a little too uh, confident already. But for everybody uh, that's interested, today's episode or this month's episode is about labor market attachment. Uh, it's a very, very common defense, and a lot of people, a lot of people already know what it's about. Uh, but just for the uninitiated, Declan, can you tell me just a quick definition of what that is and how it applies to New York workers' comp? Sure thing. So basically, uh, labor market attachment is the requirement for a claimant uh, once they are found to either have less than a total disability or they're do- either by the board or their doctor finding them to have less than a total disability, indicating they have a partial disability, that they have to ma- remain attached to the labor market, meaning they have to go out there and look for work. Within the restrictions, right? Like, Correct. You know, we don't, we're not forcing them or we're not telling them they have to look for uh, their pre-accident job if they have some level of disability. Uh, but, you know, essentially within the restrictions provided by their doctor or by the, the judge presiding over a trial on disability. And I think it kind of leads into what my next question is, is essentially what we are doing before attachment becomes right. I mean, you mentioned that we have to get the claimant at a partial disability, but sometimes there are cases where the parties stipulate to a tentative rate and the claimant may not necessarily have to look for work. Does that make sense? Or right. So in a typical case where the claimant's got an opinion from their doctor, they have 100% disability, we have an IME that says either a 50 or a 25 or no disability, we may stipulate to a rate rather than litigating the degree of disability. However, if we set it at a compromise rate, so let's pretend our doctor says 25 their doctor says 100, we decide to split it in the middle at 62.5%, that is then a tentative rate. There's been no finding by the board the claimant has a partial disability. Uh, our adversary is never going to agree to that tentative rate of a compromise if we're going to pursue labor market attachment, or I would assume they won't. Um, so typically, if we're going to go down this path, it's no longer a matter of compromise. We either have to have a do- the claimant's doctor saying they have a partial disability, either usually it's going to be 75% or less, or the litigating it, uh, taking depositions, and then having the judge decide, while your doctor says you have 100% disability, Mr. Claimant, uh, we don't agree or I don't agree, uh, you have a 75% or a 50%, and these are your restrictions. And don't forget, it's, it's Ms. Claimant too, right? Not, not, not just the men out there. The women get to rely on their doctor's continued finding of total. Uh, but like you said, uh, there's no finding by their doctor or the judge that they're at a partial disability. So they're entitled to rely on uh, their own medical evidence going forward. Uh, Now, we do know that there's been a proposed and recent change to the law that affects attachment. Essentially, once a claimant reaches MMI, 
uh, in a non-scheduled case, they don't have to consistently prove that they're attached to the labor market. Is that correct? Right. So uh, now, based on the reforms in April 2017, uh, claimants that have been classified with a permanent partial disability no longer are required to remain attached to the labor market. So if you're going to pursue this defense, it has to be done before there's been a finding by the board that the claimant has been classified with a permanent partial disability. Yeah, and I, I, I think that you bring up a good point. Uh, if we want to use it, and don't we shouldn't take this new law as it's the defense has gone completely. We should be using it. We should be raising it as a defense and putting pressure on the claim, especially when we know that the claimant is not totally disabled. So definitely look into your claims and, and decide, okay, if I'm trending towards permanency, let's see if attachment will apply here uh, and see if we can get them to look for work prior to uh, reaching permanency. Especially in case, I think, where the claimant's treating doctor early on is giving a partial disability. We know it's unlikely that we're going to be at MMI or a board finding of MMI for probably at least another year. Um, if the doctor very early on is giving a partial disability, that might be a way to start giving us leverage and getting a settlement demand or pushing for settlement or uh, putting some nemesis on the claimant to basically do something. Right. Now, uh, the big foundational case for labor market attachment is a full board decision, uh, American Axle. But before we go into exactly what that states, Declan, in your experience, what are the types of proofs that the average claimant produces in support of being attached to the labor market? In my favorite case, it's the claimant that comes in and says, I've done nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. Uh, then there's the ones where they come in and they say, I've done all these things, but have no proof that they've done them. So they say, I've applied for these 45 jobs in the past 60 days, but when you ask for what proof they have, it's just basically, take me at my word, please. Uh, then the next one is whenever they, there's a board form C-258, which is the most common form that uh, claimant's attorneys will give their client or I'll, I'll usually ask for it when I raise it, that they produce that form because that form has specific columns that give us all the information that we're going to want to know, uh, basically where they applied, whether that job was actually – whether that employer was actually seeking someone to apply. Because very common, we have people that come in and say, I applied for these 50 locations, and then 35 of them, they weren't even looking right. for someone to apply. So are I they applied, but hire? they're not hiring. So right. give me credit for this, this uh, attachment. And I think that that's – really important to know uh, is exactly what we're dealing with when we go to court, right? We're not dealing with uh, someone who is super, super motivated to go back to work. They're going to do what they think is necessary, and American Axel actually outlines exactly what they have to do. So uh, there's a, uh, obviously it's not just one particular thing you have to do, but you know, train, re getting retrained in a vocational rehab uh, uh, facility or, or or with a company that does that type of thing is probably uh, the thing that they talked about most. And specifically, they basically said that documentary evidence of active participation in a reemployment service is determinative of labor market attachment. But I want to talk about exactly what that means. So the board, uh, the full board in that case, talked about six things that they have to do. Right? It's not just one of them, but. It's calling for the appointment. It's attending an orientation session, meeting with a counselor to develop a resume, registering that resume in the system, following up to determine if that vocational rehab facility has given them job matches, and then following up again to see how your referral has progressed. Now, 
the average claimant, Mr. or Ms. claimant that you just talked about, how often do they meet that burden? <laughs> um, I've maybe in my life encountered a couple of people that have done all six things. It's usually call for the appointment and then say, oh, I got sidetracked or they told me they couldn't help me on the phone or they gave me an appointment and I couldn't go in or I did go in and then I never created a resume. So you know they didn't really go too far if they didn't create the resume or they have a whole bunch of reasons why they didn't actually go through all six six uh, parts of the process. Right. And I, I think it's funny too that one of the reasons that they don't do it is because they don't know, right? Like they might not know exactly, hey, I have to keep doing this. Uh, they might think that, I just have to sign up and do my own independent job search, which brings me to the second part of American Axel is this independent job search where I hear of a job and you hear of a job. I might follow up on it, but it may not be within my restrictions. Uh, it may not be uh, feasible or, as you pr- brought up, the employer might not actually be hiring. The, the full board said in American Axel that a timely, diligent, and persistent outreach to a potential employer's is the minimum that you need to get across, but it's still not sufficient to just be deemed attached. So when you talk about that C258 and just listing every employer that's that they've done so or allegedly have looked for work there, are we put in a situation where uh, we're behind the eight ball here? Do, do you think that do you think that there's even a trend to even uh, get better with that based on the new law or is it something that's going to continue the way that it's been done since since the dawn of time i guess um i haven't had enough cases since april to determine whether they're actually going to change it i think that because um i would say the majority of claimants come in with a very minimal work search effort that when someone does show up with 20 jobs they've applied for the past 30 days that the judge is actually impressed by it and almost (laughs) ignores the fact that this alone is not supposed to be sufficient for uh, proving labor market attachment. That's actually a good point, right? Because we've seen judges find claimants to be attached based on looking uh, at, for one job per week, right? So if they see three jobs per week, but maybe I don't have the address of the employer, or maybe I don't have uh, the, locate, the, uh, the name of the employer even, it's almost like the judge is is comparing it to someone who's who shouldn't be attached anyway or is shouldn't be deemed attached and finding that person attached so what do we do then uh if we're faced with a standard that's in place but judges aren't following it well of course we always have the right to appeal if we think we have if there's we're going to prevail on that um most common what we will do is if there's an independent job search and they produce their proof and it doesn't seem like or we think that it's not legitimate We'll go out there and subpoena the employers. Maybe not all of them, but if they gave a list of 30, we may subpoena 10 random employers and see what those employers have on file. Um, especially the bigger companies, they're more likely to have job applications kept on file uh, and see if this person claims they've applied for Domino's Pizza, does Domino's Pizza, when we send a subpoena response, actually have a, a job application on file? Uh, if they didn't, we may have a, even have a basis to pursue fraud on the claim. Right. And so in both avenues, we would be seeking a suspension of benefits. And I think that's the uh, dynamite that we like to throw on these cases is essentially show them that we're not here to just review your paperwork and, and take what you provide as true. Appealing attachment or raising fraud does throw some kind of mud in the water to say, you know, this claim should be settled or this claim isn't really – something that should be progressing down the straight and easy path. Uh, 
um, attachment appeals? Do we uh, do you find yourself appealing them? Do do our clients uh, normally suggest or want to appeal these findings? I think it's on a case by case basis. To be honest with you, um, oftentimes it will give us the ability to suspend benefits, uh, indemnity benefits, not medical, of course, but it gives us the opportunity if we believe the person's not attached to the labor market to suspend indemnity benefits while the case is on appeal. And then that in itself might put more pressure on the claimant to settle a case. Um, but there's various reasons why an employer may decide if there's an upcoming, uh, if they know that they may be coming back to work or the claimants continue to get better or we're, going, we're getting closer to MMI and they know that it's just a matter of time, they may decide that it's not worth appealing it. So that's right. the case. Right. Like, you know, we, there are obviously practical, practical considerations to uh, making that decision. And attachment is no different, right? Uh, if we want to suspend benefits uh it could be a for for good reason you know like you get your claimant who looks for five jobs in five months and that's clearly not a bona fide search uh but you know there are like you said reasons to do uh either way now i know you got this right last time (laughs) but we're back for a redux of guess the outcome I'm going to give you four facts this time because five seem to be uh, too many for you. You're too good last time. Is that okay with you? Sure thing. (laughs) Okay. Continuing the confidence. I like it. All right. First fact, uh, claimant testifies that he went to Workforce One but did not return after being told that there was no work for him. Now, the second fact is that at a subsequent hearing, claimant testified again but this time he said that he did return to Workforce One, and they assisted him in setting up appointments at vocational facilities uh, in his location. Third fact, claimant did not attend these appointments, but, you know, hey, he traveled to Puerto Rico. Fourth fact and final one, he testified that he did seek work in Puerto Rico, but he did not have any documentation to prove that. This case went before the appellate division. It's at, it's a fairly recent decision, June 1st, 2017, and it's actually unpublished yet. It's unpublished right now. But, Declan, I want you to uh, decide for us or guess guess the outcome, guess the decision, as to what the board or the appellate division might have found in this case. I would like to think that they suspended benefits and found the claimant not to be attached to the labor market for numerous reasons. First of all, um, at the – if you said he first testified he went to Workforce One but didn't return after being told they didn't have work, well, clearly he hasn't met the first any of the more than one uh, prong of that first test whenever you go to seek for uh, reemployment services. Second of all, I think there's going to be a major credibility issue here if claimant tells testifies to one thing one day and then testifies something different the next day. So you may even have a basis to pursue fraud if it seems that there's a legitimacy to that. Uh, third, if he's testifying that he's uh, gone to Puerto Rico and not submitting any any documentation to show an independent job search or proof of it, uh, I think that in itself is pretty, to me it's a pretty blatant case of, and I don't know how this went past the board panel to get to the appellate division, but I would think this is fairly straightforward that there's, there should be a no attach, uh, labor market attachment finding. Yeah, and, and that's right. Uh, the, bo- the board actually found him to be not attached to the labor market in that case claimant took it up to the appellate division and the appellate division agreed uh, and i think one of the things that you pointed out was the various bits and pieces of the testimony they actually said that on first glance 
it's not credible for you to say one thing one time and a totally opposite thing the second time. But it's very clear that when you don't have any documentation of your efforts, that you really, really run that risk of being not attached. You know, we talk about filing that C two five eight and how low of a bar it is. So when you don't even do that, uh, you know, it's you just have to hope that you know there's some good judge out there that's going to apply law to uh, law to facts and and find for the defense in this ca- in this case. Was this a pro se? Cl- I'm just asking if this was a pro se claimant. Do you know? Uh, no, it was not. I just find it interesting that with based on the fact pattern you provided that the board panel will find him not to be attached and then claims attorney would actually decide this is the case that they want to take to the appellate division. It seems like a, a pretty open and shut case to me. Well, you know, I don't like doing uh, nice favors for claimants attorneys in my spare time, but I think we can all agree that there's, you know, there are some claimants that, you know, direct their attorneys to file motions and appeals and even request for hearing hearings even when there's no basis to do so, right? Understood. Oh, you're going to remain <laughs> – now you're going to be quiet? I just file – it's a very expensive process to go to the appellate division. I just – seems like a, a strange case to decide to fight that fight. But I do agree with you, and actually uh, a, a point about this one is they later found him to be reattached. The appellate division actually only discussed a closed period, and I know that in, you know, in my experience dealing with these cases, it's fairly simple to reattach – yourself to labor market, especially after you know what means that you're not attached, right? If you already complete an insufficient uh, bona fide search in terms of looking for uh, the right vocational rehab facilities, following up on all all the things you have to do, doing an independent job search that's uh, diligent and timely and persistent, and that still doesn't work, then you already know that you have to do more. Right, and I think that we've seen in cases where claimants routinely are found not attached, but then reattach themselves at a later date. Do you find that experience similar in your cases? Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. I mean, I think that unless they have an anticipation of going back to work immediately, um, they'd be foolish not to at least make an effort because otherwise they're not going to get their indemnity benefits. Uh, like you said, they now know what they have to do. Most of the cases I've ever found a claimant not that. I've won an argument they shouldn't be attached to the labor market and benefits should be suspended. An RFA is filed by our adversary within a month, and all of a sudden there's— Maybe even sooner, right? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And proof from the day after we got benefits suspended that, hey, I'm looking for work. And I, not only did I look for work, I look for 10 de- jobs a day after you guys got my benefits suspended. So it's usually a very—and I'm not going to say all the time, but it's usually a very short win um, before the board finds a claimant to be reattached again. Right, and and but that doesn't mean we don't we don't raise it. You know, it's still practical to get us to that final endpoint. Our goal is to either either settle this claim or push it to permanency, and doing that still puts us in that right framework, even if it may be short lived. Right, because there's plenty of claimants that even doing this minimal amount of work is too it's much. Too much. For, yeah. It's too much. Right. And then there's also those who are in certain situations, like if you're on Social Security disability, you know that they're more than likely not ever returning to work again. So that in itself might be a reason why they may not be looking for work. So there's there's a lot of factors that could play into this. Well, I'm glad you came uh, and helped me with this discussion, Declan. We're going to have to see if uh, your many fans out there similarly download this podcast. Or maybe it's just opioids. Maybe that's just thing, and I didn't need you for the first episode anyway. I'll be busy in my office for the rest of the afternoon downloading this like crazy. Okay. All right. So someone other than my mom. Sweet. Uh, 
Very happy to have you again. Uh, I want to thank everybody who has tuned in, despite the fact that your cases are still up for hearings and trials uh, the third Friday of June. But until next time, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.